Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. I want to begin uh, this morning by slightly revising my outline for this sermon from what you see in your bulletins. We're going to come back to the excerpts from Matthew 25 and Romans 10, which we began with a moment ago, and we're still going to do so in the context of this broader message on the topic of mission. So if you've been with us the past two Sundays now, you know we're be- we've begun this year with three New Year's resolutions as a church corresponding to our threefold purpose statement as a church to love God, to love one another within the church, and to love those outside the church missionally with the love of Christ. And so this morning we will in fact be talking about that third component, mission, but I'm going to take a slightly different approach than what you find in your bulletin. And so here is your new outline uh, for this morning. Three motives for two mandates toward one mission. We are going to be considering together this morning the three possible motives with which you and I can pursue the two mandates that we have been given by God for accomplishing the work of his one overarching mission. And we're going to tackle all three of those chiastically, and so I'm going to introduce God's mission first, then his mandates, then the motives behind it before returning to the mandates and finally ending once again with the mission. Hopefully the flow will make more sense just as we work our way through. So we start with the mission. What do we mean in the church when we use this word mission? You're probably all familiar with the idea of missions. You know, we have a missions team here. Some dozen of you serve on uh, 10% of our budget as a church. What is our mission as a church? What is the the capital C? Church's mission. Every church, every true church's mission. According to Jesus, the church's mission is to work with God to advance the kingdom of God for the glory of God. That is the church's mission in a nutshell. We work with God to advance the kingdom of God all for the glory of God. So the first thing we recognize about that is that God is at work here in our world. God is working to advance his kingdom. Now, that language may sound a bit odd for many of us these days because the idea of serving a king is sort of passe. In fact, some 250 years ago, some of our ancestors declared war so that they wouldn't have to serve a king anymore. But many millennia before that, all of our ancestors did the very same thing. A guy named Adam and a gal named Eve declared war on God himself so that they wouldn't have to serve him as king anymore, so that they would be kings and queens, gods unto themselves. And so here's what that looks like if you're a visual learner in simple illustrated form. In the beginning, God created everything good, and everything was under his perfectly good reign. God's rule, that's what a kingdom is. A kingdom marks out the territory over which a king rules. And at one time, in God's case, that was every square inch of the universe. But as a good king and not an evil tyrant, 
God had given Adam and Eve dominion over the earth. That means he gave them the free choice to serve him as king or to reject him as king. And in their sin and their rebellion, they rejected God as king and they invited a new king to come in and rule over them instead. The kingdom of sin, Satan, darkness, hell, death. But as our good king, God didn't just give up on us. God launched a plan to reinstate his kingship here on earth through a single man, Abraham, who would father a nation, Israel, through whom God promised to one day bless all the nations of the earth, to take it all back under his benevolent sovereign rule. That was the plan. And at times, it seemed like the plan was working. Like God's people were beginning to regain ground for God's kingdom by renouncing their sin, by obeying God. But more often than not, if you know anything about the Old Testament, it was one step forward and two steps backward. And instead of being a wholly set-apart people who represented God well to the other nations and influenced them to live for him, and Israel instead began to be influenced by those nations and became just like them and served their gods and fell back into sin. Hence, the more red, I should have made it even more red than that because they were usually pretty much indistinguishable from the kingdoms of this world. And yet God and his sovereignty, we discover, had purposely allowed for this in his plan, the entire history of the Old Testament, to help us see that we weren't the ultimate answer to the world's problems. We're actually the reason for the world's problems. The solution then would have to come not from us, not from men like Abraham or even the best of mere mortals, but from God himself. God himself would have to come down from heaven and rescue us for himself, reinstate his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And that's exactly what, Je what Jesus did. It's what God did in his son, Jesus. God sent in his love, his own son Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man who ransomed back to God humanity, fallen humanity, restored us back into right relationship with God by paying our sin and defeating the kingdom of sin, hell, death once and for all on the cross. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like you and me. But the good news gets even better than that. And this is where we return to our theme for this morning of mission. When Jesus saves us from sin, he doesn't just take us out of this world. Otherwise, there'd be no Christians around. Instead, he fills us with his own Holy Spirit, and then he purposely leaves us here in this world. In fact, he sends us even deeper into the world, the very darkest corners of the world, to be his ambassadors and to take his light and his truth and his hope and his love, the saving good news of Jesus to all people, all corners, every nation. Church, this is our mission. Working with God to advance the kingdom of God, all for the glory of God. Now, if that is our singular mission, then you and I will pursue it to the extent that we devote ourselves to two mandates that Jesus has left us with. Not surprisingly, Jesus' favorite topic of conversation while he worked, walked on this earth was the kingdom of God. He's always talking about the kingdom of God. After all, that's what he came for, to bring it back, to reinstate, restore the kingdom. 
But the way in which he did it was twofold. Pretty much everything, you could go through the Gospels, all you know, 84 chapters, four, four Gospels, and, and you could categorize every single thing that Jesus did for three and a half years of ministry into one of two buckets. It, all of it was either serving the least of these physically, or when he wasn't doing that, he was serving the lost spiritually. The least and the lost, meeting physical needs, Jesus healed the sick, fed the hungry, and meeting spiritual needs. Jesus taught the good news of God's kingdom, and he cast out demons. And now that he has died, been raised, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, just before he did, he left us with a mission. He calls now all who follow him to do the very same things that Jesus did in many ways. I mean, the way in which we partner with God in advancing his kingdom, making earth look a little more like heaven every day, is by devoting ourselves to these same two mandates, meeting others' physical needs. When the disciples told Jesus, hey, the crowds are hungry, he said, you go feed them. And secondly, meeting their spiritual needs. Jesus sent them out ultimately to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. So Jesus says, give him bread, literal physical sustenance, but don't forget to give him me too, the bread of life, so they can be filled forever, sustained, spiritually satisfied, eternally with Christ himself. Now, before we dive into the text, still on the introduction here, will be for quite some time still. If the mission is what we're called to do, work with God to advance his kingdom, and if the mandates or how we're called to do it by serving the least and the lost, then there are three possible motives that I see for why we could decide to do it. Okay? Speaking of feeding others, I have given my daughter, Ellery, a job to do. I have commissioned her with the responsibility of feeding the dog every morning, right? But she could decide to do that for one of three reasons. Her obedience could come first from what we'll call a transformed heart, a transformed motive. It is possible that what Ellery once saw as a chore that required me to daily remind her, have you fed the dog yet? She could in time come to view as a privilege that she just voluntarily carries out from her own internally motivated, motivated reformed heart. Whether it be out of a sense of empowerment, like, wow, I can't believe mom and dad actually trust me to keep this living creature alive. That's a, I better step up to the plate, take responsibility. Or from a sense of maybe empathy, even better. You know, I know how much it stinks to go to bed hungry when I refuse the, the casserole that mom made for dinner. It's not fun. I don't want poor Bentley to go to bed hungry tonight, so I'm going to feed her. Either way, empathy, empowerment, it's coming from what I think we could probably agree on, the highest, purest form, motive for obedience, a truly transformed heart. Second motive we'll call the trusting motive. Perhaps Ellery hasn't yet had that change of heart. Maybe if it was up to her, frankly, she'd still use those 30 seconds that it takes to scoop the dog's food for reading her book that she's enthralled in, for continuing to play with her toys that she's caught up with. But she does it anyway because she knows it's not up to her. She knows dad said so. And perhaps she doesn't yet understand why dad told her to do it, why it's important to dad that the dog not starve to death, why it should be important to her that the dog not starve to death. But she obeys anyway because she knows that I am in authority over her and she trusts me 
as her father. If dad's telling me to do it, it must be worth doing, even though I don't feel like it. Trusting motive. The third possible motive we'll call the transactional motive. Because it's honestly more about what's in it for me. Her heart, her heart could still be 100% selfish, and yet she could choose to obey because she simply ran a quick risk-reward analysis, and she concluded that the benefits of obedience outweigh the cost of disobedience. That those 30 seconds of sticking her head in the smelly uh, container of dog food are worth it for the $3 of weekly allowance she's going to get, and more importantly, for staying in God, uh, Dad's good graces. Perhaps most motivating of all, it's worth it to stay out of the kind of trouble she knows she would surely be in if she willfully disobeyed me. So transform, trusting, transactional. What what do any of these motives have to do with our mission and our mandates? Well, these are the three reasons that you and I might decide this morning, resolve, to devote our lives this year to the cause of meeting others' physical and spiritual needs, living on mission for Christ. We might do that from the purest motive of all, a transformed heart, a heart after God's own heart. And I could take us this morning to all the passages. Well, we wouldn't have time for all the passages. We'd be here till next week. But I could take us to dozens of passages in God's word that show us clearly his heart for the least and the lost those suffering from desperate physical and spiritual needs. Maybe we've got time for one dozen at least. God's heart for the physical, physically hurting. Psalm 10, O Lord, you hear the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. Psalm 140, The Lord maintains the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. The Lord himself, personally, Psalm 12, I have seen violence done to the helpless, God says, and I have heard the groans of the poor. Now I will rise up to rescue them, says the Lord, as they have longed for me to do. 1 Samuel 2, the Lord raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy up from the ash heap. Jeremiah 22, is not this to know me? Anyone want to know God this morning? Here's how you know me, declares the Lord. Judge the cause of the poor and the needy. Luke 6, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Passage after passage, clearly God revealing his heart for the poor, the needy, the broken, the fatherless, the oppressed, the afflicted, the hurting, the least of these. How about God's heart for the lost, those in spiritual need of him? Ezekiel 33, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Those who are far from me, I I don't get any pleasure from sending them to hell. I want you to turn and live and come be with me. Heaven, 2 Peter 3, God is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 1 Timothy 2, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the saving knowledge of the truth. Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if you're poor physically, you're blessed. If you're poor in spirit, 
humble, you're blessed. Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 15, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous person who, persons who need no repentance. Jesus said, if, it's not the healthy that get the doctor. If you're healthy, I got nothing to do for you. I came for the sick, the spiritually sick. God loves the lost and the hurting, so we should too. Go and do likewise. And that's, that's the first best incentive for serving this morning. The second reason we might decide to recommit ourselves to Christ's mission this year comes from a trusting heart. We could do it simply because God says so. And God does say so. Repetitively, clearly, over and over again in his word. Because God cares so much for the least and the lost, God clearly, repeatedly calls us to care for them as well. About 2,000 times. If you were to go through your, your Bible and just highlight every time, oh, there's God caring for the least. Oh, there's God you know, loving the lost, wanting the lost to be saved. 2,000 times in the Bible. But let's just survey another dozen of them here. God commands us to meet others' physical needs. Firstly, Deuteronomy 15, if there is any among you, anyone in need, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Psalm 82, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Isaiah 1, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Isaiah 58, share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, cover him. Proverbs 31, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Zechariah 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the alien, the immigrant, the poor. James 1, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Luke 3, whoever has two tunics is to share with them who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. You got, you got too much, you got leftovers for lunch tomorrow, give it to the guy who's got no food. Likewise, Christ commands us to meet spiritual needs. Go meet physical needs, go meet spiritual needs. Matthew 28, familiar with this one, we end every service here this way. Go make disciples of all nations. That's a command, that's an imperative. Go, you. Today, this week, go and meet people's spiritual needs for Jesus. Make disciples. Acts 1, be my witnesses. It's an imperative verb. Go, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the ends of the earth. 2 Corinthians 5, God has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 1 Peter 2, we've been saved to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaim it. That's why you've been saved. So even if we don't always feel like ministering to others, 
We'd rather spend those 30 seconds playing with our toys on the couch. If we love God enough and if we believe his word enough, when he clearly commands us to get off the couch and meet physical, spiritual needs of those around us, then we might obey simply because we trust him. We trust that God's priorities for us and how we should spend our time, our talent, our treasure are better than our own. And for some of us, that's all we need. God said, God said so. I'm going to fall in line. I'm obeying dad. Then there's this third motivation for obedience. Consider this. Even if we don't yet have truly a heart after God's own heart, and even if we're not willing to go serve others simply because it's important enough to God, and he commanded us to do it, even without a transformed heart, and even without a trusting heart, did you know it's at least still possible for you to be transactionally motivated for Christ's mission this morning. You can, you can be 100% selfish, and if, it, if you've at least got your theology straight, if you're thinking about God rightly, if your head's in the right place, even if your heart's not, even if you've still got a heart of stone, you will obey God and go and serve the least and the lost, if for no other reason than self-interest a self-serving desire to be rewarded and to avoid punishment. Now, that that may seem like a bad reason to serve, like it cheapens it if we're just self-motivated. But I think it's it's a testament to just how important this mission really is to God, that he would appeal not just to our highest, purest motives, incentives, intentions, but to even our, our sinful, selfish motives and use those to motivate us, to incentivize us for the job that he's left us with. And there's no question that even this transactional motive for service is found all over the pages of Scripture. Again, dozens, but I'll just do one dozen again. Stick with the theme. Physical needs, even if you're just selfish, you're going to meet others' physical needs if you believe in God. Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Why? He will repay him for his deeds. Proverbs 22, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. You want God to bless you? You better bless others. Isaiah 58, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be lifted as at the noonday. Luke 14, when you give a feast, Jesus said, Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Why? So you'll be blessed. Proverbs 28, whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. Proverbs 21, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out to God and not be answered. Proverbs 22, do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will rob of life those who rob them. Matthew 10, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water will by no means lose his, what? Reward. Matthew 19, Jesus said to him, if you'd be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and then you will have what? Treasure in heaven. Anybody want treasure? Want to get rewarded? 
passage after passage essentially saying, look, if you do it for no other reason, you should at least help out the needy because God will bless you for it. And conversely, if you don't, he's going to curse you for not doing it. And the same goes for meeting spiritual needs. Ezekiel 3, God commissioned Ezekiel, said, I've made you a watchman for the people of Israel, Ezekiel, so give them warning from me when you do not warn them about their sin or dissuade out or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their lives, I will hold you accountable for their blood. That's God threatening punishment if you don't evangelize, warn of sin. Similarly, in the New Testament, Jesus shares this parable of the talents, which is too long to read this morning in full, but the moral of the story is this, that we Christians have been entrusted with the good news of Jesus, and those of us who share Jesus with others are going to hear, one, one day we'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and we will be rewarded. Enter into the paradise of your master. It's prepared for you. While those who keep the gospel to ourselves are going to hear, cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because Luke 12, Jesus declared, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. Reward. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Punishment. Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evils against you falsely on my account. Why would they do that? Because you're witnessing for Christ. Because you're being an ambassador, he says, rejoice and be glad for your what? Reward is great in heaven. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul said, each will receive his wages, reward, according to his labor in the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, so then we make it our aim, Paul says, to please God. Why? Well, hopefully, just because you love God. But even if you don't, 2 Corinthians 5 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Remember the sheep and the goats? So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, Paul says, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Why do we persuade? Why do we tell others about Jesus? Because we fear God. Because we fear what he's going to say if, if we get to heaven. And he says, why didn't you share the gospel with this person, with that person? Why didn't you tell anyone about me? How much clearer could I have made it to you, this call to evangelism? And so we have three motivations here, transformed, trusting, transactional, for pursuing these two mandates, physical, spiritual needs, the least and the lost, And all of it ultimately is in the service of one overarching mission to bring God glory by advancing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Now, that was your 12-page introduction to five-ish, four-ish page exposition now of Matthew 25 and Romans 10. So I wanted to find the best passages that more clearly than any others illuminate our mission with both of its accompanying mandates, the least and the lost, while 
at least hinting at all three of these possible motives and why we should do it. And for my money, there is no better text of Scripture to incentivize you and me to go and meet physical needs than Matthew 25, and there is no better text to motivate us to meet others' spiritual needs than Romans chapter 10. And as you see in your original outlines, in your bulletin there, the motivational undercurrent behind both of these passages we're going to quickly look at here as we, as we end, the, the motivation is the reality, the unavoidable, inescapable reality for every single one of us of death and after death of the afterlife. You and I and every person who has ever walk this planet, or will ever walk this planet, will live, maybe 38, 58, 58, 78, maybe 98, like Miss June, years, and then we must all inevitably die. And we will, after death, spend infinitely many years in one of only two places, according to God's word. So, if the afterlife lasts for the rest of eternity, then it only makes sense to live your 38 years, or your 28, or your 58, 78, 98, however many years God sees fit to give you here on earth, it only makes sense to live them in light of and preparing for the infinitely many years that are going to come after that. And the Bible very clearly lays out how you're going to spend that eternity. It's in one of two possible places. The first place is a place called hell. Hell is mentioned some 54 times in the Bible. Uh, the person who talked about hell more than anyone else was Jesus. So it's impossible to believe in Jesus or a non-fictional Jesus uh, without believing in hell. Hell is described in the Bible and pretty much, I'm sure, all the ways that your mind immediately goes to, the images that are evoked when I just say the word hell. What you think of is probably what it is. It's a place of fiery torment, eternal agony and suffering away forever from the presence of God and everything good that has ever existed in your life. Now, most of us ac accept the reality of hell. Two-thirds of Americans still believe in hell. Of course, we know the truth isn't democratic. Hell would continue to exist if all of us just decided to stop believing in it. Uh, but even still, most, most Americans still believe in hell. We just don't think anyone we know is going to end up there. Uh, certainly not us. I mean, we're all pretty good people. Surely God wouldn't send folks like us to hell Hell, okay, hell has to exist for your Hitlers, your Dahmers, but not for us. See, the Bible tells a very different story. The Bible says that we're all sinners and that all sin is ultimately sin against an infinitely perfect God. And therefore, it deserves infinite punishment. Now, the Bible says that every single person who's ever lived, except for one, 
deserved, rightly deserved hell. And tragically, most of the people who have ever lived, will ever live, will get it. Not just the Hitlers and the Dahmers, the vast majority of people who have lived and will live will populate hell for eternity, including many who claim to belong to Jesus. Matthew 7, depart from me. I never knew you. Jesus, we did miracles. We came to church every week. We cast out demons. I don't know how many demons you've cast out. That's like varsity churchgoer. Depart from me. I never knew you, he's going to tell them. Many who claim to belong to Jesus will be in hell. And everyone who does not truly belong to Jesus will be there. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to God. No one gets out of hell. No one gets into heaven except through me. And so let's quickly now consider what Matthew 25 and Romans 10 teach us about how we can belong to Jesus and therefore escape hell and make it into heaven. Number, uh, point number two in your outline, Jesus explains in Matthew 25 that whatever we may claim to believe, we do not truly belong to him, and therefore we cannot get into heaven. We will go to hell if we do not meet others' physical needs. Uh, the passage we began with this morning, don't have time to reread it. Go back and double-check me in your Bibles. This passage, Matthew 25, often wrongly labeled the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's not a parable. It's not a metaphor. Jesus doesn't say, here's what it's kind of going to be like when I come back. He says, I'm going to tell you exactly what it's going to be like. This is how it's going to pan out when I come back. When I return, I'm going to sort out those who belong to me, the sheep, from those who don't, the goats. And notice, he doesn't say a word about believing in them. There's not a word in Matthew 25 about repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. There's not a word about that decision you made one time at Canacuck when you were in middle school. It doesn't really fit with our evangelical sensibilities and paradigms for how this is supposed to work at first. (laughs) Jesus just simply says, as you did it for one of the least of these, you fed the hungry, you welcomed the stranger, clothed the naked, helped the sick in prison. If you did that, you did it for me, you belong to me, you're in. You didn't do it, you don't belong to me, you're not in. Go away into eternal punishment. Now, if I wasn't directly quoting from Jesus there, the red letters, most of you, at this church anyway, being the good Orthodox, evangelical, Protestant Christians that you are would scream heresy and pick up stones. You would scream works righteousness. Never. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And on that front, you would be right. But Jesus' point here in Matthew 25 is that while it may be faith alone that saves us, true saving faith is never alone. That while the Catholics have it wrong when they say that it's our faith in Jesus plus our works for Jesus that result in our salvation, 
Here in Matthew 25, Jesus isn't talking to them. He's talking to us, the evangelical Protestants. If we believe that it's simply faith resulting in, work, in salvation with works nowhere to be found in the equation. No, Jesus says, listen, your faith in me brings salvation from me, which then will bring works for me. Did you hear that? Wake up, evangelical Christian, this morning. Your faith in me brings salvation from me, which will result in works for me. Jesus said, you know a tree by its fruit. Faith may be the roots that cause the tree of salvation to grow, but good works are the fruit. And so when he comes back at the final judgment, Jesus essentially says here, listen, sure, I could dig up every tree and check your roots, but I've got a way quicker, easier, just as effective, just as reliable way to parse out the sheep and the goats. I don't even need to dig you up. I'll just check the fruit. Did you do what I left you here to do? And please notice, please notice, self-righteous Christian, Matthew 25 also subtly rules out what I call artificial fruit. Petri dish, lab-grown fruit that didn't come from a real bona fide tree. Works not derived from saving faith. Ruled out. Notice the sheep's response to Jesus in this passage. Do they proudly step up to the front of the judgment line, ready to receive their merit badge? No. What do they say? They're almost surprised. Wait a minute, Jesus, far be it from me to correct you, but I just got to ask, I don't remember seeing you hungry and feeding you. I, I don't remember, I, mean, I remember going to the prison, but I don't remember seeing you there, right? They're surprised because it just flows naturally out of a transformed heart. Now we're getting to motives. Remember earlier when I said, you can be 100% selfishly motivated and still pursue Christ's mission to the least and the lost just if you want to avoid hell and get into heaven? Well, I need to amend that statement slightly. <clears throat> you can serve others for the wrong reason, but here's the thing. It won't work. It won't get you what you want. It won't get you. Doing it, it won't get you out of hell and into heaven. Because if you're helping others really just to help yourself, then you're not a sheep. Because there's no surprise. There's no humility. You're still keeping score. You're still expecting that merit badge. That's, that still works righteousness. That's still Jesus plus That's still Jesus plus you, your works. That's not genuine saving faith. There's so much more that we could say here, but I have to leave it at that. If we don't meet others' physical needs and do it for the right reason, because... Jesus wants us to, and even more than that, because we want to, because his Holy Spirit now lives within us and is changing us day by day, changing our own desires to be more aligned with God's desires, his heart. If that's not true of us, then we're goats who will go away into eternal punishment because to love Jesus is to love those whom he loves. To care about Jesus is to care for those he loves in practical, tangible ways. Food, water, shelter, clothes, visits, medicine. But along the way, we can't forget point number three now. 
that ultimately we need more than food and clothes because man does not live by bread alone, Jesus said, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. That's what this book is. This book is spiritual food. It's what Jesus was, spiritual food, the bread of life. And so listen, if we just feed and house and clothe and visit people without giving them Jesus this year, then we will be sending them with full bellies and smiles, comfortable, well-fed, well-dressed along their way to hell. Because one must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead in order to be saved. Who will be saved? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how will they do that? How will they call? Paul is just reasoning it out here. I mean, obviously, he says, obviously, people, people can't call on someone they can't plead for mercy to someone who they'd never even heard of. Again, it's the sick that need the doctor. I mean, it doesn't matter how sick you know you are. If you don't, if you don't know a doctor, you can't do anything about it. They need to hear about the doctor. And they can't hear about Jesus unless someone tells them. And in order to tell them, we've got to be willing to go to them. As it is written, he says, so how beautiful are the feet of those who go preaching the good news. That's what you all are. You know that? I mean, I can ask you what you do for a living. I'm new. Oh, what do you do? What, if you're a Christian, you're going to say, well, I'm a missionary. Um, I get paid to be a nurse. Um, I get paid to work at Bowen, but I'm a missionary. That's, that's what I do. I preach the good news. And it is good news, friends, indeed. I mean, this is glorious news that despite our sin, despite our deserving hell, while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us to give us new life, to give us eternal life in heaven with him. And that's point number four. Heaven's just as real as hell is. It won't be as populated but it can be a little more populated today, this week, this year, if God's church, Christ's church, will be motivated for the mission to which he's called us. Heaven is real and it's possible for you and for those you love and those you don't even know. Eternal life in paradise. Heaven is everything you think when I say the word heaven, it's everything that comes to mind, and even more, infinitely more, greater. You probably don't, we probably don't have a, a very good sense, really, of what hell or heaven will, will look like, will be like. The magnitude. Heaven will be amazing. It's a party that you are not going to want to miss, and so let's be the people that Christ has made us to be this year and take care of the least of these. Because if we're not those people and we don't do what those kinds of people do, then, then we won't be there. It's a party that you're not going to want to miss. It's a party you're not going to want anyone else to miss either. And so let's get busy doing what Jesus has left us here to do, sharing the good news with the spiritually lost. That's what we're here to do. Again, this is 
why Jesus doesn't just rapture you immediately when you come to saving faith. You're here to be a missionary. I'm here to be a missionary. May we share the good news with the lost and the least. And may we do it all. May we do it all. Not just to receive some reward and not just to avoid some punishment. Not even just because God said so. May we do it because we know what it's like to go to bed hungry. Because when we were the least and the lost, thank God that his heart was still for us. May he now fill us with his heart for them, the least and the lost.